Amen. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. I want to welcome the folks who are watching by internet and know that uh, we appreciate you. Um, I'm pretty stoked about the Super Bowl. Uh, I, I don't know if you are or not. Some of you probably care about it. Some of you may not care at all. I, I will just let you know if you've got any fuzziness about who to root for that you can bring that into focus <laughs> because, because one of the teams that's playing has this young fella named Patrick Mahomes. And um, boy, it's hot in here. Yeah, anyway, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but uh, Patrick Mahomes used to play for Texas Tech. There he is in a number five Texas Tech jersey. My wife is fond of saying we practically raised him. Um, now, we've never met him, but she's fond of saying that we practically raised him. Uh, he, uh, uh, after all, went to school where we went to school, and so... I think that is pretty much us raising him. Um, I was trying to put together pictures for today's PowerPoint. I was amazed at how many people were just doing guns up and were celebrating touchdowns with a Texas Tech celebration. And so uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the game. Uh, it does not start until later on this afternoon. Uh, uh, I would urge you to um, root for Tech. Uh, hold on, let me get this out of the way of Patrick. I don't want anything to block his number. <laughs> now, we do get a lot of downloads of this lesson from Red China. I suspect there's those crazy Americans, their football, guns up. Anyway, just, uh, I'd love to tell you classes about the Super Bowl. But it's about something even more super than that that should bowl you over more than a football game. Because we are going to talk theology. Now I got in last night from a 30-hour journey back from Cape Town, South Africa. And um, uh, uh, I'm not really sure what time zone I'm in. I'm not really sure if this is real or if I'm dreaming. If I'm dreaming, you look marvelous. <laughs> if this is real, you, you, you look marvelous. And thank you for being here. But last week, uh, uh, David Fleming, Pastor David and I, were in uh, a seminary in, uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, teaching for the week. And it was just an amazing time. And it's an amazing place. And it was crazy busy. But one of the things that, that was so neat is they've got all of these students and professors all dealing with the Lord. And so we've just had a week of pretty heady theology. And some of what we're talking about today in passages worth the dig, Romans 1, 16 and 17 part, duh, some of the stuff we're talking about is real theology that you would get at a seminary. So I want you to sharpen your pencils and sharpen your brain. Clean out your ears. Get ready 
Because this is not just, hey, let's go to life group and talk about the Super Bowl. This is, let's have a chance to really dig down into some theology and deal with some of the really important core matters of God and his relationship with us. So I started this two weeks ago, and I told you all two weeks ago, please pay attention because I want you to see the passage really clearly. The passage says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you focus on this, you'll see as we discussed two weeks ago, that this is pretty important stuff. The gospel is God's power to save. Don't you want to be saved? Does your salvation mean anything to you when you go through death's door which all of us will do barring the return of Jesus when we go through death's door don't you want to go through confident of your salvation well the gospel is the power of God to save everyone it makes me want to do something. Now when I learned this passage, I learned it from Dr. Harvey Floyd and he would dig into this by asking questions. He was fond of doing that. So I mean one of the first questions you've got is if the gospel is God's power to save everyone, I'd like to know what the gospel is. I know it means great message or great news, but what's the great news? That'd be like if I told you, now hear me, I told you, I've got some news, and when I give you this news, this news, as you act on it, or as you hear it and believe it, this news is going to deposit immediately, immediately, one million dollars into your account. This news is going to do that. Have a good day. (laughs) And then I leave. What good does that do? I'd like the news, please. So we discussed what is Paul's gospel. What did he consider to be that great message, the great news? And the answer to that was the gospel for Paul is an historical event. The gospel, it's not the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Paul spoke of the gospel, those hadn't been written. The gospel is the great news that Jesus Christ died on our behalf and was resurrected to our gain. That's the gospel. That's the great news. That's God's power to save everyone. 
Now, there are lots of passages that speak of this. But the clearest understanding that that's what Paul meant comes from a letter he wrote about the same time that he's writing to the Romans, within a few years. He wrote to the Corinthians. And he said, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, the great news that I preached to you. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the great news. That's the gospel. That's the power that God has to save. So that was two weeks ago. I welcome you to watch it on the internet if you, if, if you want a refresher. But it's, it's the reason... For example, in Matthew 16, that Jesus told his apostles, he said, uh, he explained that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He had to do it. This was going to be God's power to save everybody. So the gospel I preached to you was Jesus dying for your sins. If we go back then, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Jesus dying for our sins in accordance with the scriptures being buried and resurrected on our behalf on the third day. I'm not ashamed of that, Paul says, because it's God's power to save everyone. Listen to me. There is no one, zero, no one who can be saved apart from the forgiveness of sins that was wrought by Jesus on the cross. You may think, well, I'm pretty sure God's going to save me because I'm a pretty good person. Sorry. Paul never says that your goodness is the ability of God to save you. He says that the gospel, the death of Christ, is the power, dunamis, the ability of God to save everyone who has faith. The Jew first, but also the Greek. Everybody. For in it, in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or to faith I like better as it is written the righteous shall live by faith now if I'm looking at this and I see that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed I got a big question to ask what is the righteousness of God what is this righteousness Paul's talking about? Now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put a theological statement up by Tom Wright. Uh, Pastor David and I were in his home about 10 days ago. And uh, on our way to South Africa, we stopped to visit. And, and, and he, he's got a new book out. Uh, it, that thing is like the size of, uh, well, it's, it's massive. And, and so I've got... Tom Wright fresh on the brain. But Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, 
had a really profound theological statement that's entirely relevant on today's class. Now I'm going to give it to you. I'm warning you ahead of time. He's got it. This the, the guy is a professor, like he teaches. Okay, he's uh, he's at Oxford now at Wycliffe Hall. Um, he's he's a bishop or was of the Church of England. He's like he's he's a mucho smart dude, and he often writes books for academia. And so from one of his books that was from one of his lectures, and by the way, he'll be lecturing at our library this summer in June, and I hope to have him in class the Sunday after he lectures, so we'll, we'll uh, do another interview of him like we've done before. But he wrote this, and when I show it to you, I don't want you to say, oh, I don't get that, and tune out. Because I promise you, if you'll pay attention today, shortly you'll understand what he's saying with no problem. So here's the statement. Tom said, if you start with the popular view of justification, you may actually lose sight of the heart of the Pauline gospel. Whereas if you start with the Pauline gospel itself, you'll get justification in all its glory thrown in as well. Now, you may read that and say, you can have different reactions. One is, I don't get it. One is, I don't get it, but boy, I agree. And one is, yeah, it makes good sense. Well said, Tom. I want to move everybody to category number three. Now, first of all, what we have to do is remember or learn or be minded of that word justification. If you start with the popular view of justification... Now, justification, justification is a courtroom term. It appeals to the lawyer in me. It's a term, a concept from courtrooms of there's an impending judgment. Judgment is going to be cast and the judgment will be condemned unless the judge finds and declares the person not guilty. That's justification. Uh, Pastor David's little uh, uh, acronym, if you remember him from preaching it, he would say justified means just as, just as I'd never sin. Just as, justified never sin. Thank you. So that may help you remember it as well. But it's a courtroom concept of not guilty. So you can think of it that way, justification, justified. You're standing in front of the judge, the judge brings the gavel down, whack, not guilty. All right, let's go back to what Tom said. If you start with the popular view of God saying, bam, not guilty, of justification, you may actually lose sight of the heart of the Pauline gospel. What's the Pauline gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you start with the popular view of how God declares you not guilty, you may lose sight of the core, the heart of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But if you start with the Pauline gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you will get not guilty in all its glory 
thrown in as well. Does it make more sense? Okay, so let's go back to the, the, the passage. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on my behalf. Because that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is God's power to save everyone who believes. Jew and non-Jew alike. Because, and that, that for there is very important. Because in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, in that historical event, in that time and deed, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So if we're asking this question, what is righteousness? It's going to be very helpful for us to know. But we know that somehow it's linked up to God declaring us not guilty. That we are justified, that we are declared not guilty because God is enabled to do that, empowered to do it. Dunamis, uh, Greg emailed me that. Uh, dunamis in the Greek there. It's in an emphatic position right after the gospel. It's the power of God to save. Anybody that's being saved. So righteousness. Righteousness is a Greek word that comes from a family of Greek words that includes justified and, and, and a number of other things. But it's dikaiosune in the Greek. Dikaiosune. I'm going to say that so many times you're going to dream about it. You're going to dream. Honey, I had a horrible dream last night. What happened? Dikaiosune was just chasing me. Actually, that wouldn't be bad. It all depends on how you use it. Dikaiosune is a word that's used in two different arenas or senses. Um, one ethical and one legal. We do the same thing with our English language. So the ethical sense of dikaiosune just means doing right. Righteousness in that sense. The, um, all right, let me give you an English example. Uh, recently, uh, uh, I represented a, a really spectacular lady. And uh, um, she had been um, indicted for the Varsity Blues. Um, she had paid $15,000 to have her daughter's SAT score bumped up a little. And uh, that was wrong. And so when I met with her and we went through all of this, um, uh, uh, and she knew what she had done was wrong. And uh, the, the lawyers that we had up in Boston uh, and, and I uh, met with her. And we went through it and we prepared her to go in front of the judge to make a plea. Her plea was guilty. 
and uh, ultimately she was sentenced to, to two weeks of time and she did her time. But, but her plea was guilty. The judge says, how do you plead? She said, guilty. Now, guilty in that sense is a legal term. But guilty can also be an ethical term. I ate too much in the Super Bowl party. I feel guilty. You know, or I didn't treat someone the way I should. I feel guilty. See, we can use that same word in a non-legal sense. You see the difference? And the reason why is because dikaiosune is the same. Dikaiosune, if you look in Matthew 6, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 1 says the following, Beware of practicing your righteousness, dikaiosune, before other people in order to be seen by them. That's an ethical reading of the word. That's Jesus just saying, you know, um, um, ethically how you behave, righteous in that sense. Uh, you, you can see it, uh, Jesus has used it already in Matthew 5. Uh, Matthew 5.20 is a good example. Uh, 5.20. I tell you, unless your righteousness, dikaiosune, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless, and by the way, the scribes and Pharisees were incredibly moral and ethical, by and large. They were legalists, man. They followed the law to the hilt. And Jesus is instructing, not even that's good enough to get you into heaven. If you're trying to get in on your moral and ethical ability, you've got to exceed that of the most holy people they had around them. But righteousness there is a moral and an ethical term. That's what it's being used as. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, you've got that ethical usage of dikaiosune, you've also got a legal usage, a judicial usage. This is like the person who goes into the judge with a plea of guilty or not guilty, or the judge, the court finds you guilty, or the court finds you not guilty. Dikaiosune, that's it. That's, that's the word. So you can see this, for example, in John 16, 8 and in Acts 17, 31. John 16, 8, first, Jesus is talking about the coming Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the following. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is a legal term here. Righteousness. Not just how you doing, but righteousness under judgment. Guilty or not guilty. And you'll be convicted of that. It's related to ethical conduct. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say it's totally divorced. But if you go to the Acts passage, Acts 17.31, Paul is talking to the Athenians, people of Athens. 
And he uses dikaiosune to the Greeks who made up dikaiosune. <laughs> so Paul says to the Greeks in 17, or Acts 17.31, he says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. That's a courtroom scene. He will judge the world in dikaiosune. In terms of its guilt or lack thereof. He will judge the world by a man whom he's appointed. Dikaiosune. God will judge and declare guilty or not guilty. This courtroom language is one that people were aware of. And Paul not only had usage of it out of his Greek language and, and the common Greek of the day, but several hundred years before Paul wrote, some Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, had taken the Old Testament and translated it into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. That is the Bible version that Paul, or versions, that Paul used most of the time while he's out in the Gentile world. It is from the Greek Old Testament that Paul quotes in most of his letters. And so we can see the word dikaiosune being used in the Greek Old Testament in passages like Leviticus 19.15. And here we'll see it in a judicial use. So Leviticus 19.15 is in the section of how to treat each other and what you should be doing. And it talks about this. You shall do no injustice in court. Don't be partial to the poor and don't defer to the great. But in dikaiosune shall you judge your neighbor. You judge, dikaiosune, in righteousness, guilty, not guilty. It's a judicial term here. So this brings us, if we go back to the PowerPoint, this brings us to a very compelling question. And that is, how does God judge? In righteousness. See, this is why Paul says, for in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in the, in the death of Christ on our behalf, in that gospel, that great news, in that, the dikaiosune, the judgment of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, which means the not guilty of God. The justification of God. All of these words are wrapped up together. God God judges justly, righteously, fairly. God does not run some kangaroo court. God does not use tilted scales. God doesn't say, well, I'm a partial to someone who was born in America, let's just be honest. No? Well, I mean, if English is their primary language, I, you know, those are, those are my people. No? 
God doesn't judge it based on how much money you make. God doesn't, God's righteousness doesn't pity you because you're poor or defer to you because you're rich. Leviticus. God requires humanity to run a fair court. You can be guaranteed God is going to run a fair court. God doesn't base anything on, on your skin color or lack thereof. I don't want to leave out the albinos. <laughs> Pigmentally challenged. God, God does not make any judgments based upon sense of humor or lack thereof. God judges fairly. God makes a righteous decree. Now, here's the deal. If that's righteousness is God's fair judgment of not guilty, now it's all starting to make sense and I hope the puzzle sort of comes together. Because justification, this courtroom concept of impending judgment, it can only be set aside if the judge declares someone not guilty. The judge is saying, you're not guilty. God is going to tell you, you're not guilty. And the question is fairly asked, how does God do that? How does God make us or find us righteous? How can God not squirrel with the rules? Not run the kangaroo court? Court's not a pig circus. How does God declare you and me not guilty? A uh, gentleman I knew for years and years, he's passed on now. Good, good man. Good man. Very devout, had his faith in the Lord and yet if you ask him, when you're dead, is God going to save you? His comment would be, I hope so. I don't know. I'm not worthy. And that used to strike me as such a sad thing. And this was the passage that I would go to with this gentleman. And I would say to him, wait a minute, you've got to understand in the gospel is God's power to declare us not guilty. In God's, in the death of Christ, is the righteousness of God. We are righteous before Him by the death of Christ. We are not guilty before Him because of the death of Christ. For, because in the death of Christ is our not guilty, righteous, true, genuine, real guaranteed and that's what we've got now there are three different general ways historically people have tried to understand us getting the righteousness of God here I'd like to tell you those three I'm going to be honest and upfront and tell you that I like number one so I'm putting it as the right one. But then why do I start with three, two, and one? Because three is the worst one. Um, and if I just tell you the good one, then when I get to the bad ones, you'd say, well, duh. So I got to start with the bad one. So this is like a countdown. 
third best answer out of three. <laughs> One view, which goes back in history to a, a, a heretic named Pelagius in the 400s. One view is infused grace in this sense. God infuses you with grace through the death of Christ or your uh, association with that death through uh, uh, various ways you contact it, whether by baptism or, or through communion and the Eucharist or whatever. God infuses you with grace, which makes it possible for you to live a moral and righteous life. So you've been infused with grace and now you can choose not to commit any mortal sins and, and, and be who you are. Righteous and moral before God. Now that, that's not the biblical view. It is not a biblical view that, that God has made it possible for you to live morally and righteously. This view not only found itself pre present in, in the, the life of Pelagius, but it was uh, in the church for a, a long period of time. Martin Luther rebelled against it. It resurfaces in part of the Methodist movement and the Pentecostal movement, not all. But I got to tell you, it's not the biblical view. That's not the great news. The great news is not God's made it possible for you to be a good person. Tom Wright said it this way. He said, I must insist right away that if you come upon someone who genuinely thinks that they can ful fulfill Pelagius' program. He wrote this is a British edition. They can't spell program. In whichever form or variation you like, if you come upon someone, you should gently but firmly set them right. There is simply no way that human beings can make themselves fit for the presence or salvation of God. That is reading righteousness. Dikaiosune is an ethical term. In the gospel, the, the, the ethical righteousness that you can have is, is there for you. That is not, not what Paul is talking about. It is not number three. Shall we move to number two? Now this is going to shake some of you. Because I, I, I just taught in Jersey Village and it sounded to me like one of the fellows, it's a smaller class, so we got a couple people that shout out helps for me periodically as I'm going through it. And one of the fellows who shouted out a little help for me, as I'm talking about number three, said it's wrong. It's num it's, 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 and then he shouted out what number two was. I said, let me teach. Hang on. Because I'm going to point out why that one's wrong too in just a minute. You don't want to, you don't, you don't, you just hold on now. Hold on. But number two is a popular one. Number two is very Luther-centered. It is called imparted or imputed righteousness. It means that God has given the believer the righteousness of Christ. So you are righteous before God because Christ was righteous and God gave you the righteousness of Jesus. And passages that support this or seem to support it are like Galatians 3 where 
Paul says, when you are baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. So, so uh, one illustration I heard from a preacher who was trying to make this point was that you put them on uh, and God doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. That's wrong. It's, it's noble. And it's not fully wrong. But it's still wrong enough that we need to call it out. And, it, it, and I love the fact that it says, you know, that Christ is your righteousness. Yes, Christ is our righteousness. But it's not a fake righteousness that's painted on to us. My professor, Dr. Floyd, you know, understand we were in Middle Tennessee in Nashville when I was in school digging through this. And he likened it to manure in a cow pasture. And he said, <laughs> he took his glasses off and he looked at us. And fortunately, uh, they did not use PowerPoint in those days. So we were having to imagine this instead of visually be repulsed. Um, he said uh, to me, uh, to, to the class, he said, um, it is as if your sinful life is a pasture filled with manure. And snow starts falling on the pasture. And that snow covers up all traces of the manure. He said, do not for a moment think the pasture is clean. It's just covered up. He said, a view of imputed righteousness, that we just get the righteousness of Jesus. If that's true, he said, such a righteousness is based on a fiction. You're not really clean. You're not really not guilty. You're not really righteous. But God will pretend you are because Jesus was. And he's going to give the righteousness of Jesus to you. God's righteousness is not based on a fiction. You and I are not righteous and you and I are not pure and you and I are not right before God and we're not saved and we're not justified and we're not redeemed because God's covering it up. Let's go back and look at the winning answer. Ding, ding, ding. Number one, God's righteousness. The believer is not guilty because the debt was paid. Is paid in full. God has paid the debt. He didn't owe it. The wages of sin are death. You and I have sin. Something's got to die for that sin. And the Old Testament image of a bull or a goat or a dove or whatever they were killing was never really going to pay the price for human sin. Human sin needs to be paid by a human who's willing to be separated from God and killed for that sin. And that's the great news is that Jesus said, God said, I'll become a human being and I will do that on your behalf. I will hang on the cross and darkness will, 
will occur as God hides his face from the sin I take on. As I cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I will do that so that the debt can be paid. Because God doesn't run a kangaroo court and he can't just forget of, forgive us willy-nilly. He's going to pay the price because the sin has to be paid for. But the sin has been paid for. He has done that. Dr. Floyd, one day in Greek class, one of our students, uh, uh, one of the, my co-students hadn't prepared the work yet. And he was, he'd already, I think, warned us that he was going to try and get Dr. Floyd distracted so that we didn't read through as much Greek and it would minimize his chance of exposing himself. <laughs> so as Dr. Floyd walks into class, this Greek New Testament in hand, and gets up to the podium and puts it down there, Puts on his glasses. The student says, uh, Dr. Floyd, Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd says, uh, yes. And he says, you've never told us. Would you tell us about the day you got saved? Dr. Floyd, oh, yes. Yes, it's very important. Yes, let me tell you. The day I got saved is almost 2,000 years ago <laughs> on a hill outside Jerusalem. And he began to expound on this passage. This is the power of God to save. This is God's power. This is what God, this is why N.T. Wright says, if you start with a popular view of justification, infused grace, imputed righteousness, you may actually lose sight of the heart of the Pauline gospel that Jesus paid the price for our sins. But if you'll start with the fact that Jesus paid the price for our sins, then you're going to get justification in all of its glory. The number one answer thrown in as well. So the reason on the other side of death's door is glory is not some fisherman's hope that God's going to overlook our sin. Everyone who believes has already received a full and final payment in full of every sin you've committed. So, well, but what about the sins tomorrow? Yes, Jesus doesn't have to die again to cover those because he'd left them off on the cross. Well, yeah, but I'm really, really bad. Oh, come on. The guy who wrote this had killed someone. I mean, this isn't written by, you know, little Johnny good shoes. This is written by a guy who had his edges. Now, by the way, I don't mean Tom Wright who wrote this. This <laughs> kills anybody. I meant Paul. <laughs> but do we begin to fathom that the supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe who could never be appealed to any higher judge has looked upon us and declared righteous justification not guilty because the price has been paid. It's why Paul says later on in the Romans letter 
who can bring any charge against God's elect? When God has said that, who can bring any charge against them? Satan, can you list one sin Jesus didn't die for? Can you list one attitude Jesus didn't die for? Is there any place the blood of Jesus hasn't redeemed among God's children? I'm not ashamed, Paul says, of the fact that Jesus died for me because that's God's power to save everyone who has faith because in the death of Christ, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, we've got more questions. We're coming back to this next week, God willing, because I want to talk about what faith is and what it means from faith to faith. And we'll wrap this passage up next week. In the meantime, can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, we thank you for the great news of our salvation by the finished work of Jesus Christ. To tell us, die. It is finished. I pray that you will make that real in our hearts and in our minds. And, and when the enemy tries to confuse us or tries to persuade us or dissuade us, tries to work in our heart to, to make us doubt, that you will work through our minds to instruct our hearts of what truth is and what you have done so that we can live confident lives before you taking seriously sin, knowing that it costs the most supreme price of you, fleeing from it in our lives so that we can live out the righteousness that you have earned for us and credited to us. May we walk as your children through the blood of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next Sunday.